Welcome to Rock Content's Jam Session podcast series. In each episode, we sit down and talk with industry experts who share proven marketing strategies, best practices for content, tactical advice, and tales of SaaS and entrepreneurship, and so much more. Enjoy today's episode. Hello, good afternoon from London. Good morning, good evening, depending on where you may be joining us from. Uh, my name is Giuseppe Caltabiano. I'm leading brand growth and product marketing here at Rock Content. And it is my immense pleasure today to host this jump session. Today we have with us Thompson Webster. Welcome, Thompson. Hello, hello. Um, I'm delighted to be here. Thanks. Thank you. And, but before I go with a proper intro, um, let me spend just one minute to talk about our jump sessions. Our jump sessions are a mix of interviews, uh, like the one we have today, podcasts, webinars. They are hosted by us at Rock Content and they feature top marketing and SaaS experts and innovators. And uh, we do all of this with one common theme, which is providing advice and share trends and best practices on how to master premium content experiences and storytelling. And today we have definitely one of those top marketers and innovators, Thompson Webster. Thompson, you have spent the last 20 years helping marketers driving action from their ideas. Idea Whisperer, I really love this definition, by the way, <clears throat> and we will come back to this. And a keynote speaker, uh, Thompson helps people find, build, and tell stories of their ideas. She's also a message strategist, a former executive producer at TEDx Cambridge, and founder of the Red Thread. Uh, she's also consultant and keynote speaker. Thompson, a very warm welcome to our Rock Content Jam session. We are very glad to have you here with us. I am delighted. Thank you. I'm excited to talk about content and storytelling and how it all intersects. All right. Now, we will split the questions in three main groups. The first is about origins and today, then maybe we go deep on the methodology, uh, the red thread methodology, and finally, we talk about the future. All right, let's start. Uh, Thompson, I want to start today by asking you, well, to tell us something about yourself, just for the audience who still don't know who you are. I like to say that I am an English to English translator, since English is my first and native language. But what I mean by that is that I, I work with experts on how to translate their ideas into language and concepts that not only will anybody understand, but that other people find irresistible enough to act on. So what does that really mean? It means that I've spent about 25 years in brand and message strategy at this point, plus some interesting moonlighting jobs on the side that have really affected how I think about all of this. And the result is now that I do a lot of work with founders, experts, teams on how to make sure that their products, services, businesses, big ideas uh, come across with the power and the impact that those ideas deserve. Right. And back to your bio, uh, Thompson, you say you are an idea whisperer and keynote speaker. What exactly is an idea whisperer? <laughs> well, first of all, that, that was a, a title that one of my clients gave me. And she explained that she thought that was appropriate because like a horse whisperer, I kind of works with horses based on the sympathetic understanding of their needs and where they're coming from. Uh, she felt I did a very similar thing for her with her ideas. So my role of working with people often one-on-one -on -one, is really to understand where they're coming from, what it is that they're trying to accomplish, what are the kind of real key things that are important to them uh, in the world and how they operate, how they see the world, and then use that 
unique point of view that they have to help articulate their ideas in a very powerful way. So oftentimes that means that we end up finding ideas that are bigger than people anticipated or expected, but we always find the deeper power of them. And that's that's pretty exciting part of my work. Right. So let's talk about storytelling since uh, we are already here. A few months ago, I, I did an interview to the chief storyteller at General Electric, Thomas Kellner. Still jam sessions. It was a very fascinating conversation. And Thomas told us some incredible stories about GE's storytelling practices, which mm. basically last uh, so, so many, many years. And if we consider that General Electric is an industrial brand and the general perception is that's definitely not interesting at all. Well, that was not really the case. So my question for you, Thompson, is why do stories work? Why are we humans so attracted by stories? Mm. Well, stories are how we make sense of the world. Uh, They are both consciously and unconsciously how we explain why things happen the way they do. So once upon a time when we didn't really understand the science of what was going on, they were literal stories of there's a God that's responsible for bringing the sun up. And, you know, there's another God that's responsible for the night and the moon, for instance. But once we started to understand that evolution, we still needed that explanation of why things happen the way they do. And stories are that. They are explanations. They are essentially arguments for why something happens the way it does. And that's interesting because there are there are a fair number of scientists who who really talk about how science in itself is storytelling. It just happens to be based on a little bit more evidence than we had back in the days of of gods and monsters. And so I like one of the things I like to say about story is that story is the logic of the mind. A lot of times we think that story is the opposite of logic. It's why I think we tend to think that a place like GE couldn't possibly have stories or couldn't possibly have an interesting one. But there's a reason why GE and really any company has come up with the products that it does. There's a reason why it operates the way that it does. And that roots, all of that finds its roots in how both the individuals and an organization as a whole fill in those blanks of that story that explains why what they do makes sense, why what they do is the right answer for what they're trying to achieve with the company and for the world. Right. And and in addition, I see that we as humans have some kind of biological reaction to stories. We generate hormones like oxytocin, basically the empathy drugs, right? The empathy hormones that make us feel very close to the story protagonist or no, things like that. So it's, it's also a, a biological reaction. Now, it's time to introduce, in my opinion, the, the red thread and the concept of the red thread, which was very fascinating for me when I read the book. Now, what, what is the red thread and where does this concept come from? So the red thread is I adopted the concepts pretty wholesale uh, from our friends in Northern Europe. Actually, it's a, it's a fairly common expression in Sweden and surrounding areas. I've you know I've had various folks from Europe saying, "Oh yeah, 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 we use that frame as that term as well to refer to the main idea of something, the the theme, the logical progression of arguments, the thing that makes things make sense." And that to me is, that is the red thread. So my personal definition of a red thread is it's the story that we tell ourselves to make sense of the world uh, or the stories that we tell ourselves to make sense of something. And so given my work, that's, that's central to it. I mean, marketing is about conveying a central idea of something. Content marketing is absolutely about 
conveying a main idea of something, particularly to drive action. And my work in TEDx was about how do you how do you define that big idea and and translate it to the terms that non-expert audiences can understand? So that seemed like the right thing to call the work that I did. And so what I wanted to do was find an easier way to find that big idea and have a better way or a more powerful way of articulating that red thread. And for that, the red thread was doubly accurate because not only to describe the outcome of what this process that I had developed would produce, like the process develops a red thread, the main idea of something and the logical progression of arguments. The path to get there evoked what I understand and what my research shows is the origin of why the Swedish and the Northern Europeans call the red thread the red thread. And that is that it has its roots in mythology and specifically the red thread that Theseus used to trace his steps uh, through the Minotaur's labyrinth so he could retrace his steps on the way back out. And my process for finding a red thread very much follows a tracing and retracing of steps kind of process. So that's where it came from. And that's its story. Have you developed any specific framework? Do you help your clients using a specific framework? Yeah. So the specific framework of the red thread has its roots in storytelling and actually in story structure. Uh, because my my idea was understanding how powerfully we use story all the time, humans. My thought was, well, if we're going to come up with this idea anyway, if we're going to come up with this story that we're going to tell ourselves anyway about a new idea, a new product, a new service, or something that we hear, what if we could figure out a way to draft that story in advance or to articulate the information about our idea in a format that our brains recognized instantly. And so that set me on a path of exploring what that might be. Uh, because it isn't always appropriate to tell a once upon a time story, right? It, is, it isn't. It's, they're, they're powerful, but there's not always a time where that makes sense. And one of the things that I really saw firsthand in my work with TEDx Cambridge was that not everybody's comfortable telling a once upon a time story. Right. And yet, all humans and all human brains recognize story structure. So that's what I set out to do. I set out to find a framework that, that the brain would recognize as a story so that an explanation of an idea would have the power and the impact of a story, whether or not it was framed as a once upon a time story in the first place. And so there's five elements and each of those elements maps to a major element that's present in all stories, both once upon a time stories and these stories that we tell ourselves. In a previous interview, you mentioned in order to truly get your message heard, you have to look at your idea from the perspective of the person who is listening to it. You don't need to build your case for the idea, but your audience ideas, which means looking at the product and service from a client perspective. Can you please elaborate more on this point? Yeah. So because we tell ourselves these stories to explain or justify our reactions to things or justify our decisions or just to make sense of things, that means that we have to understand that each of us does that, right? So if we're talking about our own ideas, the instinct is to tell that story that makes sense to us. But when you're talking to somebody else, because each of us has a unique point of view in the world, the way that we put our stories together is unique and individual. We have to understand that our story, the way that we would build it, 
the way that we would fill in those blanks and match up those elements may not work for somebody else. And so the whole idea of my red thread approach is that we build, we don't build our case for our ideas. We build the audience's case for our ideas because that's the story. We have to build a story that makes sense to them from their perspective, given how they see the world right now. That makes total sense. Now, uh, stories and storytelling usually follow a specific structure. And uh, something you mentioned, which for me is, is extremely interesting, is the climax is the key phase of the story, or we can call it the point of no return or the point of truth. It's basically where you say three elements come together, goal, a problem, and the through. Can you please explain the concept for our audience? Sure. So I mentioned before that that all stories have these elements that are what create the story, that create the moments of conflict and change that add up to the transformation that any story is about. And yeah, there are five that I use in my approach and they are a goal. So something that the main character or when we're talking about content, the audience wants. Second, a problem that the main character or the audience doesn't know about when they start that is get the real thing that's getting in the way. So maybe they're trying to solve a problem that they know about, but you're introducing a problem that they don't know about that's getting in the way. And then, yes, as you mentioned before, to me, everything rests on this moment of truth because in stories, once upon a time stories, that's a moment where the main character has to make a choice. My favorite word for it is the Greek word, the anagnorisis. It's the moment where a character recognizes the true nature of their circumstances. And given that, they either have to give up what they want, which is unusual and unlikely in most humans, or they need to change how they've been looking at something, which is fundamentally the big problem that you've articulated. So that that change is the fourth piece. So it's goal, problem, truth, change. But we all know the decision to change doesn't actually mean anything until we actually act on that change. So the fifth element that's part of this approach is the actions that make that change concrete. So it's goal, problem, truth, change, actions. Which is interesting because marketers usually don't feel very confident with addressing changes. Um, how can marketers well, Yeah, talk- it's interesting that way. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that if anything, um, marketers are subject to what has sometimes been said of Americans, which is that there are no second acts in American life. In other words, you know, Americans and American culture, we tend to skip over from setup, you know, to conclusion, to the third act, to to the resolution without doing that kind of necessary internal struggle in between. I would say that most marketing and most sales messaging falls prey to the same issue. Whereas we jump from, oh, you have this problem, here's our solution, without really getting into the deep understanding about why that solution is the right solution to that problem, given what happens to be true about the world right now. So that's a really, yeah, I'm always, I'm very fascinated by that, how most marketing messages drop out that moment of truth, but all stories have it. And so back to this idea that story is the logic of a mind, like any message that doesn't contain something that creates that moment of truth is by definition, not going to be as strong as some kind of message that does. All right. There is an interesting question from the audience, uh, actually from Nick. He's asking, so as far as I understand, it is necessary to always wire emotions to storytelling. Is that the key to convince and engage? The answer is yes, but not because you're doing it consciously. Uh, When the elements of a story are present, the emotions are engaged regardless. 
So for instance, you know, let's say that you have, you know, somebody has a goal, they're trying to solve a problem that they know about. So let's say that they're trying to improve well, the probability of success of their sales conversations. They're trying to figure out why something isn't working, you know, why the conversion rate isn't as high. So that's the problem that they know about. So they're already starting kind of low, right? And if you present to them that you have a solution to that, that starts to engage that little bit of hope. Now, when you present to them the real problem that's getting in the way, that raises them up a little bit. They're like, oh, okay, so there's a way to solve this. But typically that conflict or that contrast that that's going to represent means that something else has to be true. And so sometimes that can drop them back down, but don't worry, there's a change that you can make that will make all of that work that brings them back up. Here are the actions to take to go forward with that. And then, hey, look, you've reached that goal again where you've actually achieved and you solve that problem that you're looking for. So when you invoke story structure, the emotions happen anyway. They just do because it's, it is, it's kind of natural, you know, there's this curiosity that's engaged when someone hears that goal, when they hear a question that they have, they ha- also have that they want an answer to. They're curious about what your answer is going to be. The introduction of the problem creates contrast between where they are and where they could be, what they're doing right now and how other folks could look at it that truth creates conflict for them because it creates that moment where they have to change. That change creates closure. It allows them to resolve that conflict. So that has its own feelings. And then the actions give the audience confidence in what they're doing and that they can do what they're thinking about doing. So those are engaged anyway, no matter what you do, if those elements are present. And yeah, there's a lot more we could talk about how to dial up certain aspects of that or to create a certain specific feeling with folks after you have spoken to them or they've read your content. But generally that really comes in the, that's a finishing thing. That's That comes in the delivery of a spoken presentation or it comes in some of the more actual storytelling aspects of how you write a piece of content. If you think about branding as a long-term approach compared to short-term lead generation and conversion activities, definitely branding can take advantage of storytelling and emotion because that's the way to get things remembered. And that's That's the way to remember brands, right? Back to your methodology, who is this for? Uh, who is your audience? Is it marketers or business people? Or that's a. It's been a question that I've gone back and forth with over time, and I think I break all marketing rules. But uh, the way that I think of my audience, the book is for, and really my work is for, are people who are experts. I think of it as two ways: experts and translators, meaning. There's the experts themselves that often have to take on the role of translating their ideas into for other people because their expertise and the language that they use and the shortcuts that they use and the jargon and the technical knowledge and all of that all often doesn't translate to everyday language of their customers, partners, investors. And then sometimes I'm working directly with people who maybe it's not their idea, but they're still responsible for that translation. So yeah, that generally does include marketers, marketing teams, product marketing teams, messaging, sales messaging. Sometimes I'm working with people who are similarly in that idea translator role. 
I do a fair amount of work with higher education, colleges, universities, and nonprofits. So uh, fundraisers tend to be in that translator role. They have to translate the work of the organization to donors and funders. And uh, you know, for colleges, admissions officers are all you know, the people who sign up, you know, get kids in and get students in are key as well. So for me, I'm for really anybody who needs to explain an idea to another group of people. Um, but I personally am for the people who's, for whom that idea is far bigger than they are. Uh, so I, I really like, I personally like to work more with people who, whose ideas are, are meant to serve, um, either meant to serve the world or a group of underserved people. So a lot of the work that I do with startups and smaller companies, I do a lot of work with an accelerator out of Oahu in Hawaii here in the U.S. And they're also in, partly in the Bay Area. But they do a lot of work with climate tech. So do a lot of work around sustainability, mobility, clean and green energy, those kinds of things, and environmental improvements. Because I generally love that bigger idea. I love that that ideas in service of something else and something bigger. By the way, I, I see why content marketers love you. And you have a lot of fans in the content marketing community. Um, just to give you an idea, we have today a very crowded session with more or less two times the registrants of our other usual jam sessions. So that's definitely a sign of uh, well, hey, everybody. how many fans you have. <laughs> um, now, I, I really love your content. And uh, in the last few weeks, I've been exploring some of your YouTube channels and, and some of the content you have created. And I found some interesting short tutorials. Uh, I, I really enjoy the format. It's very short. In, in immediately go to the point. Uh, one of them is called uh, What's Missing from That Message, right? Yep. And how did you come with this brilliant idea, by the way? And can you explain <laughs> to the audience uh, what exactly is the... Yeah, so that's one of the one of the features that I do occasionally on my content say, what's missing from this message? And it's, um, it well, comes back to what we were talking about earlier, Giuseppe, it, that uh, a lot of marketing and and sales messaging and advertising that I see out there misses some of these key components. And so you know, I offered and still offer uh, occasionally that if someone says, hey, you know, I my website isn't performing the way it should, or, you know, can you take a look at this introduction to a talk or whatever? Because I can usually spot what's missing from that message. So um, that's where it came from. And that's what it's about is to really what was very important to me that this wasn't a breaking down. It wasn't going, ah, look, you've got this wrong. But the way that I think about those messages and really all the work that I do is that they're always, I assume that there's always a good and big idea there somewhere. So my perspective is always just because certain elements of this are strong, how could we make it even stronger? And usually that's just almost always, it's because either one of those elements we were talking about before is missing, one or more is missing. There's, you know, there's sometimes there's, most often there's not a truth. Sometimes there's not a two-part problem, which is the second piece. Sometimes there's uh, solutions with no goal. There's a change with no goal or whatever. And sometimes they're in the wrong order. So it gave me and gives me a way to really dig in and show people how, Yes, you can use this approach to articulate your own ideas and even come up with new ones, but it also can be used as a diagnostic, a way to understand why something that you've written or something that you've produced may not be working because, like I said, there's usually something missing or something out of order. That's exactly what I liked. I remember the one coming from Apple, right? It was an advert which you found in downtown Boston, and then you started yep. to explain the reason why it was 
anyway, I will just leave this as it is, and then I will invite the audience to have a look at your YouTube channel. Um, we have another question from the audience, from Amanda. How the language connects with storytelling? Are there any tips to map the best language approach? I want to explain this as an analogy first and then kind of go from there. And the quick answer, without the analogy, the quick answer is the best way to connect language with storytelling is to simplify both the language and the concepts as much as possible without losing any of the nuance. Now, what do I mean by that? Generally, and this, and from this, I'm adapting from approach that's known as the Feynman technique, F-E-Y-N-M-A-N. And he was a scientist and this, his approach was more about how to learn for yourself. But one of the steps of that he recommended for how to really learn something really well was to learn it well enough so that you could explain it to somebody who was, let's say, 10 years old. You're getting the concept across and that you're able to talk about it, but you're using language and concepts that about a 10-year-old child would understand. And I would say that that is the best answer to, I believe, what Amanda is asking, which is that's the way you tie it is that once you know what the essential elements of this case that you're making for your idea is, make sure that each of those elements, both individually and together, are concepts that somebody who's 10 or 12 years old could understand. Now, for the analogy piece, sometimes people are like, but my idea is too big and too complicated or too sophisticated. It's too technical to be able to do that. And I will tell you, I have yet to find an idea where that is actually true. So the analogy that often works when I'm working with engineers, technologists, deep, deep, deep academics is to take the analogy of, well, we can use like Google Earth, right? Or getting GPS directions and how those come up. So let's say that you're, you want to go from one place to another and you type in, you know, Google maps.google.com or whatever to get the directions. What is the first thing that pops up? The first thing that pops up is not the detailed turn-by-turn directions in a thousand meters, take a left. It shows you a high-level map of we're going to go from here to here, and it kind of looks like this, right? So there's nothing inaccurate about that at all because they're showing you exactly how you're going to get there, but it kind of essentially checks. It's a, it's a check to make sure that That's where you're starting, right? And that's the place you want to end up, right? Yes? Okay, we've got a couple options on routes here. Which one do you want to go with? Okay, that one. Then once you've established that high-level map makes sense, right, then you go to the next level down and say, okay, we're going to take these roads. Okay, then it's the next one down. We're saying, okay, we're going to follow this for X number of kilometers, and then we're going to go this number of meters, and then... You know, if you're talking, if you've got somebody in the car with you, they're like, okay, at that street, like at that, at that, when you see that tree, go left. So it's the same thing. Like nothing ever changes about the journey. It's just the detail that you give. And when you're talking to someone for the first time about an idea, I've just found that that's a very helpful mental image to have in your mind, that you're giving the overview map first, making sure they understand that. Once they understand that, then you can go to one, the next layer of detail and resolution, not all the way down, right? You just, you're checking every time um, saying, okay, we're going to, looks a little bit more like this. Okay. And then you keep going until you get that until you're sure that they're following you with the sophistication of those concepts. So hopefully that answered Amanda's question and maybe a couple more. 
Right, thank you, Samson. Still talking about global marketing, what about the cultural dimension? I mean, we've been speaking about languages, but I mean, I, I assume you work with global clients, not necessarily yeah. from the United States. Do you approach them the same way? Uh, is there any element that change because of their culture whenever you go with your storytelling methodology? It happens not in the in the structural piece, because again, that structural piece of goal, problem, truth, change, action, those are in all stories, in all cultures. They work for everybody everywhere. Where the difference culturally comes in is how you stylistically present those elements. In the U.S., we can tend to be a bit more direct about things. And that, and so there are folks that, you know, I tend to work with a lot of speakers and authors as well. And some people's style is to be very much direct is like, here's the problem. Here's what you need to do wrong. Here's what's, you know, what you've been doing wrong. Here's what needs to happen next. I'm not a huge fan of that style personally. I, I don't find that it's very successful to tell people that they're wrong, but it can be effective stylistically. Now that same style might work very, very differently in a culture that is much more deferential to your audience, right? Where there's a huge amount of respect that comes forward and where any recommendation is is couched in, again, deferring to the audience, you know, the person you're talking to and perhaps their greater level of authority than you or certainly or age, or any of the things that might come in culturally. But fundamentally, those elements are, you know, the underlying elements are the same. And just the difference about how they're presented just needs to be matched culturally. But how aggressively do you articulate a problem? How aggressively do you say that someone has to change? Or how, how do you do that? How strongly can you word those things or not? How much other context, how much other authority building needs to be put in place that's what shifts culturally that I've seen from area to area, language to language, culture to culture. But I think the good news for everybody is that those fundamental elements really are the same every time. How does, in your opinion, giving great presentation and speaking session apply within the big picture of marketing and content marketing? I mean, speakers are part of your audience, right? And you help them to express their ideas. Uh, my question is how giving presentation apply to the bigger picture of content marketing? I'm a huge fan of speaking as a form of content marketing. I, in fact, a few years ago, had you know, I would give a talk that was called Why Speaking is Content's Last Frontier. Uh, I still think that's the case, by the way. I think it is a wildly underdeveloped and underutilized avenue for content marketing. Now, the pandemic that we've all been through and are still experiencing in different ways, depending on where we are, does make that a little bit more difficult for in-person speaking and presentation. But the reason why I'm so passionate about speaking as a form of content marketing is multifold. There's a lot of aspects to it. Number one, generally your audience self-selects into your session, right? So I'm generally talking not necessarily about keynotes, but people who are doing concurrent sessions or some of the smaller sessions. And so that generally means that people choose to be in your room. And depending on the size of the, of the conference, that could be 50 people, that could be 100, 200, 300, 400 people who have self-selected to spend somewhere between a half an hour, 45 minutes, an hour hearing from you. Tell me how much time and effort would have to go into you getting that amount of time with 50 or 400 people through traditional sales channels. Like it, it's just, it's a wildly oh, right. it's a unique opportunity, right? Unique yeah. opportunity to get in front of them. But the hard part, of course, is you can't, unless they're expecting it, you can't directly sell to them. 
So that is the tricky part, um, but it's absolutely possible. To me, you take much more of an educational approach You and the red thread comes out of that desire. How can you sell from the stage without selling from the stage in a way that people are aware of what you do and aware of how they could work with you, but feel like that you have left them empowered to do it on their own if they want. Another reason why I think that speaking is such a powerful form of content marketing is because it is, and this could be a reason why people don't do it, but it is unfiltered in a way, meaning you get so much more information about a person or a company and how they think and work when you spend that amount of time seeing them, hearing them, interacting with them, seeing how they talk about things. You just get a lot more information than you can convey in an ad or, or even a white paper. It's just a different experience to see a person and see how they interact and see what their whole attitude is. So it's a way, I think, of living a brand. Now, of course, yes, that, that's probably, again, a way, reason why some people are scared of it because if you've got a gap between what you say your brand is or what you want your brand to be and how you actually show up and deliver it, then yeah, you're going to have a challenge. But I'm super passionate about speaking as a, agree, as a former content Which is one of the reasons why we all look forward to go back to in-person events, right? Yes. To yes. finally feel people around you. Um, there is an additional question about your methodology. Uh, it's from Anne. Could Thompson articulate more about how she tells her red thread? So people come to her thinking that they need X and then she communicates the actually need Y. What yeah. is the Y? So that's pretty easy, actually. It's the first line of the book. <laughs> so people come to me with various forms of the question, how can I make my idea irresistible? Do they phrase it that way? No, but they're usually saying, how can we improve our sales messaging? How can we make our marketing better? How can we improve you know, conversion rates? Or if I'm speaking with an author or a speaker, um, how can I get a speech that people will book? How can I create a book that people will buy? All of that is a version in my mind of people saying, how can I make my idea interesting enough for people to act on it? So they come to me with all those different versions and the, the easy answer, the quick answer, not easy, <laughs> took me a while to get there, um, is that the best way to do that is to create the story that people will tell themselves about it. So I think the key here, Anne, is to say, like, I don't tell them that they need something different than what they're asking for. That's basic tenet of the red thread in my approach is that if somebody has a question, you need to give them an answer to that question. That's absolutely true. And I absolutely believe that when you build a story, a red thread, that people will tell themselves about your idea, you absolutely are going to increase your conversion rates. You're going to make your marketing more effective. You're going to create a book that's going to be more interesting to people, that you're going to create a, a talk that's more bookable for meeting organizers. And then the way that I back up and explain that is follow the red thread method. I said, okay, we want people to be interested enough in our ideas to act on them. That's the goal. But there's often something that gets in the way. We focus more often than not on what we want to say more than on what people need to hear in order to make sense of that idea. That makes sense because we are trying to drive action, right? We want to make, and it's our idea. We love it. So we really want to make sure that they get all the important information from our point of view. And yet... Here's the truth, right? That story is the logic of, of mind. Like every reason has a story. So whenever we're talking to someone about our idea or about our product or about the book we want to write, they need to hear a reason. They, need, they are going to build a, a story that explains why they do or don't agree with you. And so that's why 
if you really want make, to make your idea interesting enough to act on, to give the information people actually need to hear about your idea, we need to build the story they'll tell themselves. We need to build their case for your idea, not just yours. That's how I explain my red thread. I think it was a very comprehensive answer. Uh, Tamsa, how do you measure your success? I mean, how do you know that you are being successful with your clients? Well, to me, it's, um, I mean, there's very uh, tactical ways. So there's folks that, you know, we, we start the work and then all of a sudden, you know, then, you know, yes, he was a speaker, but he was an academic. And within the first two weeks we started working together, he said, oh, I took what we started and I put it into a grant and we just got this multiple hundred thousand dollar grant based on this reframing of the idea, the way that we had talked about. So there's that, there is increases in people's bookability, there is uh, increases in people's conversion rates and general audience awareness. So there's all that. And, and part of the work that I do one-on-one with clients builds in the measurability because marketing has enough of a problem with that to begin with, uh, because we're always working on a specific application of the message. So for instance, if you know, I'm working with a company and we're building the application of the red thread that we've chosen is, a, let's say, a website landing page then we have built into the original conversation, what is that website landing page meant to do? Because if somebody downloads the additional content or schedules a session, for instance, well, then we know that that page was successful. Uh, And so I try to build that measurability in. Now, that's all the official kind of number, quantitative stuff. Qualitatively, I measure my success on how people react to their own ideas. So this is particularly true when I'm working with my clients one-on-one is, my commitment to them is that I stick with it and stick with them until they are excited about how they're talking about their idea and that they are finding a place where it feels right to them. It feels aligned with them. It feels tuned to them and what they're really trying to get out there in the world. And those are the best moments uh, when people are like, oh my gosh, this is why we're great, right? Or this is why this is such a big idea. And those moments are, are the best. Question, over, over the last six months, or, or maybe over the last year, what was your favorite content or marketing campaign? The one you think really think is a cool idea? Maybe because it was entertaining, maybe it was educational, fun, emotional, informational. Is there anything you remember? Of course, as soon as you ask me this, like all examples just like fly <laughs> out of my head. It's interesting because a lot of them don't do it well. Um I can think of one off the top of my head that I actually think did a, did a fairly good job. And I noticed it because it came up as a Facebook ad, of all things. And it was for a device. I think it was even just a Kickstarter kind of thing, uh, crowdfunding for a device that you know, was referred to as a personal thermostat, essentially what they developed. But I, it worked very well because they anchored right in what I refer to as the goal as a question, you know, a problem that people know they have. Like, are you cold all the time? And I'm like, yes. I am. And then they were kind of going on, like sometimes it's inconvenient about, you know, being able to do X or Y. Well, we have something that allows you to create a personal thermostat so that you can be comfortable no matter what the outside temperature or, you know, or essentially that was the message of no matter what the ambient temperature of the room is. Now that in my mind satisfies what I refer to as the minimum viable message, right? So the minimum viable message is something that somebody wants, I'm always cold, with an unexpected answer, right? So something people want via a means they don't expect. And it was kind of like this, all right, you're not telling me I just need to layer up or I need to have a conversation with like Jane in accounting about how, what the thermostat is set to, like, I can actually just have a thing on my arm that would work. 
okay, I'm interested, tell me more. Now, notice I say that's the minimum viable message because I think the minimum viable message can only ever do that. It can only ever get you to go to a point where you click through and go, how does that work? Like, how does it actually work? You know, so A, most messages, I don't think, satisfy that minimum viable message. Um, They usually forget one half or the other. But second, if they pass that, then a lot of times they break down on that case, on the explanation about why their approach is different and better than other people's. And again, it's not the features and benefits, which is where we end up all the time. It's why you do the way that you do it. It's like an operate, it's like articulating your operating system. Why is this approach fundamentally better than some other approach that could also produce those same benefits, right? Like that's the only way you can differentiate. So that's the one that comes to mind. I'm sure others would come to mind, but that's the one that comes to mind now. Well, thank you. Um, There is another very interesting question from the audience. It's coming from Mark. I'm such an admirer of your work. Really happy to be here. In your first YouTube video, you talk about the importance of having a goal uh, when storytelling. Since I, as a marketer, may have more than one goal per storytelling, what is the best way to prioritize? So the first thing to understand about a goal, the way I refer to it, is that it's always the audience's goal. And so I separate it when I talk about Like if you're talking about what you as the marketer want to have happen, I refer to that as an outcome. A, because my outcomes are more measurable, but it helps to separate this concept of the the goal, right? So when I talk about a goal, I am always talking about the audience's goal. What is the audience trying to achieve? So I think the question from Mark, though, applies both ways, which is how do you prioritize outcomes? How do you prioritize audiences? How do you prioritize which goal you're going after? And I think in a lot of ways, it's very personal uh, and, and very individual to companies. And yet, you know, all the work that I've done when I work with companies is that when push comes to shove, when, when I actually say, okay, but when it comes down to it, like, what is the outcome? So again, your personal outcome as the company, what is the outcome that you most need to have happen right now? Okay. Which is the audience that you most need to talk to? Who are they? All right. And you already have your, you know, what product or service or something that you're trying to put forward, or you could decide that when those three pieces come together, the outcome, the audience, and the idea by which I mean your product, your service, your business as well, that's when you know what the message needs to be. So That's why I can't give you a super straight answer other than saying in order to prioritize the audience's goal, you need to know what is it you're trying to achieve for your company. That's the outcome. You need need to know which audience you're prioritizing, which audience is most likely to give you that outcome is a way to think about that. Audience outcome. And then if you haven't already decided which aspect of your company, which product, service, or whatever idea that you have is the one that's most likely to produce that outcome with that audience. Once you have those three things, then you can start with the message. And generally, once you have those three things, it becomes much easier to figure out what's the audience goal, what's the question that they're asking that is going to be solved by that idea, that product or service that you're trying to put in front of them. Thank you, Thompson. Julia is asking, in your experience, could you share the best storytelling successful case it comes to your mind? Yes, I, I will cheat a little bit here and use the one that I use as an ongoing example in my book um, because it's one that Seems like no matter where I, you know, no matter where you are in the world, it is a story that's familiar to you, even if it isn't one that you have ended up telling yourself. And that is the story of the diamond engagement ring, which is fundamentally 
a big old story that we have collectively told ourselves based on the elements, just the right elements being put in place by the company De Beers. Uh, so let me explain. So back in 1930s, 1940s, De Beers, who most of us know, or many of us know, is the worldwide monopoly holder on mined diamonds, wanted to sell more diamonds. And they could, of course, control the supply of that. But at the time, they demand had kind of flattened. They had all the industrial uses they could do, but they really were looking for how can we engage more of a retail market uh, for diamonds. And that may be a surprise to us right now because diamonds seem to be ubiquitous as important and expensive jewelry. But diamonds at the time were pretty much the only available to the super wealthy. And not only that, engagement rings, which is where we have you know, come to think of diamonds particularly, really weren't popular, didn't really exist. Um, and so if we think about the story that we tell ourselves about what's going on, all of that changed when 1947, when De Beers released this tagline, a diamond is forever. And with that tagline, in a lot of ways, snapped the last piece of an incomplete story into place. And what it did was it, it actually replaced the previous story that a lot of us were telling ourselves with what felt like a stronger one. So let's back up and look at these elements of this red thread in the lens or through the lens of De Beers. So as I was saying to Mark, the goal is not De Beers' goal. So the outcome for De Beers was to sell more diamond rings. Like that's what they wanted to do, sell diamond rings to the retail market. But the goal, the audience goal, all right, well, they had to figure out, all right, we want to sell more diamonds in the form of rings. That's what they wanted. That was the outcome. The idea was the diamonds, like that's the product they were trying to sell. And the audience that they focused on were engaged couples. I mean, I don't know this piece of it to be true, um, but one can guess that when they're looking for how do we expand to the retail market, they were looking for people who reliably bought jewelry, no matter their socioeconomic status. I mean, that makes sense, right? Let's look at engaged you know, people who are getting married. There's usually at least one person is getting a ring there. So the goal... The audience goal, if we're thinking about this, is something, you know, would be a question, something along the lines of what's the best symbol of our commitment, you know, that we can get or make to each other. And the problem, so there's always two-part problems. So the problem is certainly as far as De Beers saw it, but the problem that they set up for us as part of the story that we told ourselves was up until 1947, we focused on the ring, the unbroken circle of metal as a symbol of forever. And by the way, it is a perfectly good symbol of forever. I mean, a circle with no beginning and no end, that's pretty good. But they created a problem with that tagline. What they wanted us to do was actually focus on the kind of ring. So that pro you know, goal, what's the best symbol of our commitment? Problem, we've been focusing on the ring more than the kind of ring. That problem really didn't become apparent to us until the introduction of that tagline, a diamond is forever. Now, the reason why that's so powerful is that most of us agree that that is true, literally, right? It was true someplace else, right? That a diamond is a very, very hard substance. It's very difficult to destroy. It lasts a really long time. Most people would say, well, yes, that's true. And because it's physically true that a diamond is, for all intents and purposes, forever, in the context of this story, it suddenly became symbolically true, too. Because now, think about this. We, we want the best symbol of our commitment. We've only to date been focusing on the ring itself as that symbol of forever. Now we're introduced to 
the true nature of our circumstances, that a diamond is also forever. Remember I said that moment of truth forces a choice. So now we either have to say, well, no, a diamond, you know, I don't agree that a diamond is forever symbolically, which is what's happened more and more recently in recent decades, but at the time, not the case. Or we have to say, well, I don't actually want the best symbol because the introduction of a diamond being forever meant that you could essentially double down on the forever of the ring. You could have a forever circle and a forever diamond. And you're not going to say, well, now that I know that, sorry, babe, like we're not going to have the best symbol now, you know? And so what happens with that change was that we started to see the stone as the symbol, not just the ring. And what action did people take? They started to buy diamond rings as both wedding and engagement rings because they wanted to symbolize forever in that way. So to me, this is the best story, to, not once upon a time story. You notice that there wasn't like a once upon a time, there was a, you know, there was a, a couple that was getting engaged. And yes, that may be part of some of the advertising, but the story that we told ourselves to set up an expectation of a diamond ring or to justify the purchase of one completely came because these elements were already out there. And with that introduction of that tagline, De Beers just kind of snapped it all into place. And we're like, oh, I had a story for a great symbol of forever, but now I have an even better one. So I'm going to go with that one. That's a so fascinating story. Thank you, Thompson, for sharing it. I think we have time for one more question, which is probably an obvious one. Uh, what are your next steps? Uh, is there anything you are planning, anything you want to share with your followers and our audience? Yeah, so there's there's two things I'm really excited about. One is uh, that I'm working on an accreditation certification program so that other people besides me are trained by me and can go do this work for their own clients. I fully expect that people take the book and then use it on their own personal work, but um, the accreditation program gives a way that you can use it with other clients or use, you know, so agencies can use it with clients or individuals can use it with their own clients. So I'm very excited about that um, because it's something that people have been asking me about and I, and I'm only one person. So, and I'd like, I'd like more people to be able to benefit from some guided path through this process. Um, so that's exciting to me. But the other thing I'm really excited about is I was asked recently to give a less content-focused talk and a more personal-driven talk about the red thread of us as individuals, uh, because I, I believe that everything, not just ideas, has a red thread. I believe each of us as humans have red threads. Because I mentioned before, your red thread, it's how you make sense of the world. It's your unique point of view. And uh, so I'm very excited to start to open up a little bit more about that aspect of the red thread, which is I'm very passionate about. It's not what I lead with, what my own red thread is. I think that was, people aren't asking, you know, they don't come to me saying like, how do I make sense of my life? Like I mean, my, my clients are in marketing and sales. That said, Oftentimes, as a result, both companies and individuals get this realization that they have discovered something far deeper about themselves as a result. So I'm excited to be able to talk about it from that perspective. Thompson, thank you so much. It was a real pleasure. Thanks for finding the time to be with us and share your insights. Uh, what's the best way for people to contact you? Uh, best way is sign up for my newsletter, which they can find on my website, tamsinwebster.com. If they want to go straight to the newsletter, slash newsletter. But also on my website, they can discover extra goodies along with the book if they were interested in that, the way that I work with clients one-on-one, -on -one, uh, and also some of those talks that I can come give if people are interested. Fantastic. Thank you. Uh, to everyone on the line, thanks for being with us for uh, 
this episode of our Jam Sessions. Thank you, Thompson. I truly hope to see you soon. Maybe, who knows, in person now that flies finally are, are back. Um, thanks to all participants. Have a great day and a great rest of the week. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Rock Content's Jam Session podcast series. Make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform to receive our latest episodes. We'll see you next week.